To make yourself alive to God is something God must do. And it requires the power that raised Christ out of the tomb to do that. So this great love of God is something that is very easy for us to make two misunderstandings about or two mistakes as we consider the love of God. The love of God, I think, can go awry in our hearts in two ways. One is we can take it for granted. And I think that's very easy to do in the context of the church particularly those who have been in the environment, the context of the church for many, many years, we've heard it. We've always heard, God loves you. God loves you. And this is so true. But there's a sense in which you've heard it so many times and for so long that it can lessen its impact on your soul or even cease to have an impact on your soul. And if you can hear in Paul's voice here, if you can hear he's... He's at pains, I think, to describe the love of God in such a way that we don't or that we can't take this for granted. It's easy for the love of God to eventually become sort of smoothed out around the edges so that it doesn't impact our soul in such a forceful way. And by taking it for granted in such a way, it it has little to no impact upon our soul. So, One way in which we can misunderstand the love of God is by not taking it seriously enough, by not comprehending fully what the love of God means to us or what it at least should mean to us. Now, we can fight against that by teaching our souls of what the love of God is and what an amazing thing that this is that God has given to us to make us the objects of His love. The great... Theologian Karl Barth was famous for saying once, here's here's this theologian who has written such profound things about the character of God, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with, but he's written profound things, some of the most profound thoughts about God, was once asked, what is the most profound thing that you have ever learned about God? And he said, the most profound thing I've ever learned about God is, just like I learned in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the most profound thought that we can have, that God would make us the object of His love is the most profound truth probably that the human mind can begin to grasp, that God has made you the object of His love. We know that the nature of love, if it's true love, if it's genuine love, if it's real love, Love requires that the one that you love, their happiness and their joy are connected to yours. The two are parallel. We've talked about this before. That in order for love to be real and genuine, the object, the person who is the object of your love, their happiness has to be parallel with yours. For you to say that you love your spouse, but then their misery leaves you unaffected, or their happiness leaves you unaffected, how can that be thought of as real love? Loving another necessarily means that my happiness 
and the object of my love, their happiness, are parallel to one another. And the same is true for God's love. God cannot make us the object of His love without necessarily also making His eternal happiness parallel to ours. If the eternal happiness of of the objects of God's love is not secured in the next age, how can it be said that that God is Himself eternally happy or that He truly loved us? If we truly are loved by God, His eternal happiness and ours are connected with one another. When He chose to make us the people of His love, He chose to forever connect together His eternal joy and ours. That is a profound reality. To know that the Maker of the universe has determined He will not be any more eternally happy than you. So, if we fail to grasp the greatness of the love of the Maker towards us, who would make us the object of His love, then we find ourselves taking, taking this for granted and not having an impact upon our soul and upon our life. But I think the other mistake that we can make is, on the one hand, maybe thinking too lowly of God's love. On the other hand, thinking too highly of our sin. If we... If we more properly understand the greatness of God's love, the other ditch that we might fall into might be the ditch of saying, well, that type of love could never be given to one such as I, one so unworthy as myself, one so insignificant as myself, or one so sinful as myself, especially if we take the truth of verses 1 through 3 to heart, that this type of love could never really genuinely, truly be given to one like me. That's the other mistake that we could fall into on the other side of the road. Both of them mute the impact of the truth that Paul says here because the reason behind this is the great love of God for His people. And so for that to have its full impact, we have to first realize the greatness of that love and secondly, fully realize that God knew everything about you when He chose to make you the object of His love. And so there is no surprise that God God cannot be let down. You know, God can't be disappointed. He can't say, well, you know, I I sure had better hopes for Ashley and she's kind of disappointed. No. Because when He chose to make you the object of His love, He did that knowing all things. Knowing verse 1 through 3. So if verse 1 through 3 has its proper impact upon our hearts, and then we understand what Paul just said about the greatness of His love, which is the cause of Him making us alive to Christ, then the two of those things must necessarily collide together to make a big bang type impact in our soul. To say, this is the love of God, that He would love one such as I and love one such as I eternally with a perfect love. That's the impact that Paul is speaking of here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. This is something that truly we cannot understand without the work of the Spirit, is it? Paul said to the Romans in Romans 5, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit to pour God's love into your heart. It's also the work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to understand that love, 
to cause you to understand just what a, an incredibly spiritually knee-weakening thing it is to be the recipient of God's love. So this is something that the Spirit works in our heart, and this is what Paul's praying for. Paul prays that the Spirit would continually enlighten, open the eyes of their heart that they may see with greater clarity these truths. So this love of God, this is the cause for what God did. So what did the love of God need to cause God to do? As Paul says in the passage, he says it is the love because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So it's like he's got to pause right there and say, even though he's done with verses one through three, he's got to say it again. Even then, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even then, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ by grace you have been saved. So this is what the love of God has to move God to do, to make us alive together with Christ to him. We were dead to God. Remember, we talked about spiritual deadness. We had no preference for God. We preferred the earthly over the eternal. We had a bias against God. We were blind to the beauty of the gospel. We were blind to the beauty of a maker who would give himself for us. We could not look at God and see something desirable. We looked at God and we saw something undesirable. And therefore, we did not have the reflex to go to him, to love him, to believe him, to trust in him. Instead, we had the opposite reflex, which was to run away from him. That was our deadness. And God had to overcome that. The, his great love for us was the cause behind him saying, I will overcome this. I will turn deadness into life. I will give them a preference for me. I will open the eyes of their heart so that they may see the beauty that is me, the desirability that is the being, the maker that they were made to know. Now, what did God have to do to overcome this deadness in our heart? Paul just says here, he made us alive together with Christ. Here's another one of those places that if we can ignore the chapter division, I think we'll see sort of the train of Paul's thought. And if we look with me back up into to chapter one, Chapter 1, verse 18. I want to show uh, what I think is a very clear parallel that shows us this is the train of Paul's thought. This is what Paul is thinking when, he, when he's thinking about the power that's necessary to make you alive to God. The power that's necessary to raise a spiritually dead soul to life so that that soul can see Jesus and love him. So if you look up at verse 18, Paul here is, this is his prayer. He says, have having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And here it is, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Now, again, if we were just reading this straight through and we got down to verse 7 and 8, we would notice, I think, a connection. We would notice, I think, a, a parallel that Paul wants us to see. But because we sort of pause here at chapter two and we sort of consider chapter two to be a new, new train of thought, which is what that big number two often tells us it is. Because we do that, then sometimes we don't see the connection. But there's a connection, there's a parallel, there's a correlation between the immeasurable greatness of his power and the great love, the riches of his mercy, the great love. So there's this, this parallel between immeasurable greatness of power and the immeasurable greatness, so to speak, the immeasurable greatness of his love, according to the working of his great might. There we go once again. Now here, verse 20, it really comes clear, I think. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, if we had read down through verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 8, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, we would have seen a correlation. Wait a minute. Raised Christ, raised us. Great immeasurable power, great immeasurable love. Raised Christ, raised us. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand. Raised Christ, raised us. Seated Christ, seated us. See the parallel? And then there's one more parallel. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Same parallel. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Do you see it? If you were just reading through that, that would leap off the page at you. Wait a minute. Paul wants us to make a connection here between raising Christ, raising us, seating Christ, seating us, heavenly places, heavenly places. And the connection between both of them is the immeasurable power. That's what Paul wants them to see. He's praying, open the eyes of their heart that they may see the immeasurable greatness of the power that raised Christ and seated Christ. So back in that verse, remember as we talked about that verse, we talked about how the resurrection of Christ is the measurement of God's power. God's power is seen in the creation. God's power is seen in providence. All these things show God's power, but nothing shows God's power exhaustively except the resurrection. Scripture always puts the resurrection as the end-all measurement of the power of God. If you want to know how powerful God is, look to the resurrection. That's where His power is on display. And so this power that raised Christ, that seated Christ in the heavenly places, Paul wants you to see that's the same power that was needed to raise you and to seat you in the heavenly places. In other words, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that was necessary to raise you from spiritual death. It took the same power that raising Christ from the tomb, it took that same power to make you alive to God. That's how dead we were. That should absolutely take this, this idea that we can somehow stumble our way to God, that we can... Maybe we're just sick in our sins and trespasses and we just need some extra help from God. Just to, you know, we're, we were born good. We just need a little extra help. It, that should take that idea and just stomp on it and kick it right out the door. Because Paul plainly there wants us to make a, a parallel connection between the power needed to raise Jesus out of the tomb and the power needed to open your eyes to his beauty. That's the power of the deadness that we were in and the power that raised us out of that deadness. Paul's here, he's talking about not something that's just difficult. He's talking about something that's impossible. Let's think about how Jesus put this same sort of thing. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is talking about this same thing. There's, there's a rich man that turns his back and leaves Jesus. And right after this episode, Jesus tells this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of those places where our modern culture can 
If we're not careful and we look at this verse through the lens of our modern culture, we'll totally misunderstand it. Because our culture teaches us that, well, yeah, if you're a person of means and a person of wealth, then faith in God is sort of harder for you because you aren't this needy kind of person. And so casting yourself upon God is easier for you, right? So don't we just naturally understand that material wealth, earthly means are an inhibitor to faith? That It's a barrier that has to be overcome. Don't we understand that? Sort of, that, that's intuitive, right? Jesus's hearers understood just the opposite. To Jesus's hearers, wealth, earthly wealth, was not an inhibitor to faith or salvation. It was an uh, enabler of salvation. Because in Jesus' day, it was believed that part of salvation, a necessary part of salvation, was the giving of alms to the poor. That's why we read about giving alms so much in the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. Now, we understand that to be an effect of salvation, a consequence of salvation. But in Jesus' day, that was widely understood to be a necessary part of salvation. And so if part of salvation is giving alms to the poor, who would be the best suited for salvation? Those who had the most to give to the poor. So in Jesus' day, a wealthy person was considered to be an easier person to attain salvation than harder. So notice what Jesus' hearers are hearing here. And you can tell it by their reaction. What they're hearing Jesus say is the one that you thought was easier to find salvation I'm telling you is not easier. It's impossible. That's what his, that's what his hearers are hearing at this moment. So now here's something else we got to look at in this passage. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So I know you've all heard this. You've all heard this. The needle gate. Who's heard that? Where the camel had to get on his knees. And that's what Jesus is saying. Camel had to get down on his knees and cross through this needle gate and through the, through the wall of Jerusalem. Heard that? Totally false. There never was anything such as a needle gate. There is absolutely zero historical evidence that there ever was a needle gate. That story is traced back to the 15th century. Never was there any such... There's no archaeological evidence for it. There's no textual evidence for it. And in fact, that goes completely against Jesus's point. This whole needle gate, camel crawling through it thing is completely made up for the purpose of saying salvation, well, you just got to get down on your knees and humble yourself, and then you can crawl through. Is that what Jesus was saying? Jesus' meaning was plain. You ever tried to thread a needle? I mean, one side, you know how hard that is? Jesus' meaning is, think of a camel. How much does a camel weigh? 1,500 pounds? Think of a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is for the one that you consider easy to have salvation. That's how hard it is for them. That's why Jesus summarizes it with his concluding statement. What's impossible with men is possible with God. That's why Jesus' hearers said, when Jesus said this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They said, well, who then can be saved? Why would they say that if there was this needle gate that camels crawled through every day? Jesus' point was not to say salvation is hard and you must humble yourself. His point was it's impossible. 
To make yourself alive to God is not something you can do. To make yourself alive to God is something God must do. And it requires the power that raised Christ out of the tomb to do that. So that's how Jesus approaches this whole thing. And if we put this together with what Paul just said, the great love that caused God to unleash such a power as this upon dead sinners. Those two ideas should come together in your mind right now with just a great force and say that had to be an incredible love that will cause God to unleash such a power, such a necessary power to act on such a dead person as myself. If the Spirit has opened your eyes to verse 1, 2, and 3, and He seated that into your soul, and you see yourself in those verses. And then Paul says, the great love of God moved him to unleash the greatest power in the universe to act upon you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.